We are live in the Brigino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, The Golden Era of Major League Baseball, A Time of Transition and Integration, the publisher, Roman and Littlefield, the author, Brian Satterholm DeFat. Uh, please join me as we welcome Brian to the clubhouse. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. And I just want to read, this is a little bit uh, unique. We haven't had anybody in this uh, chair quite with this background. So just a little two-line bio. Brian is a former senior analyst for the Central Intelligence Agency and the National Counterterrorism Center. He is a regular contributor to the Baseball Research Journal. So before we get into Major League Baseball, the transition that took place in Major League Baseball in the 1950s, I'm fascinated by your transition. So if you could just talk a little bit about how you came to, to write about baseball. Well, I guess it all begins with the fact that my father grew up here um, in New York and he was a very big Yankees fan uh, when he was a kid and he sort of gave to me, as is not unusual, um, you know, a great love for the game. Um, what really sort of got me inspired to begin researching and writing about baseball was I think exactly 10 years ago in 2006, when he was kind of getting up there in years, uh, we went up together to uh, Cooperstown, to the Hall of Fame and uh, spent the entire drive all the way up there and then all the way back, which was to Washington, D.C., where I live. Um, so that's an extended distance, talking about the history of the game, and uh, particularly about the teams he was most familiar with, which were the three New York teams at the time that, uh, that he was growing up. And that just got me really fascinated in uh, you know, that era in particular. Now, at the same time, I was working um, at CIA, I had t a terrorism account, um, and, at, and I was actually already at the National Counterterrorism Center as a CIA person um, assigned there. And uh, I guess one of the great blessings of working in an organization like that is that you can't take your work home with you <laughs> um, because it's all classified, but it still sort of stays with you. And so researching and writing about baseball became a little bit of a kind of like a release uh, valve to kind of take my mind off of constantly thinking about that, uh, that sort of stuff. And then after my daughter finally graduated from college um, and I was eligible to retire, um, I just thought, well, now is the time to kind of devote more time, full time even, to uh, researching and writing about baseball. Um, the thing about the agency, that has really contributed to this is uh, I'm on the analytical side, or I was on the analytical side, which is as opposed to the operations side, which is what everybody hears about and that everybody gets all excited about. Now on the analytical side, one of the things that's very important is to keep in mind that policymakers get a whole range of information about what's going on in the world. And particularly these days, you know, with the advent of 24-7 news, all the stuff that's out there, all the experts, they get the messages that the embassies and even intelligence officers are sending. 
So what it is our job as analysts to do is to provide them greater insight into what's going on than they themselves, and we're talking about very smart people, uh, are able to get from their own point of view. Uh, not from their own point of view, but from the information that they're looking at, which is the same information. And so we've been sort of taught about trying to find what it is, what, not so much a particular angle, like say for a Hollywood movie or a novel or something like that, but what angle is it or what dynamics are there that would really help them to better understand the uh, situation in the world that they're confronting. And I kind of took the same approach with regard to taking a look at uh, you know, the research uh, that I was doing in baseball. The book, for example, is not intended to be any sort of a revisionist history of what went on in the 1950s. And I certainly recognized, even as I wrote the book and uh, you know, sent it out to see if I could get a publisher for the book, that it was an era that has, in fact, been well covered by a lot of other writers. Where I hoped to be able to make a difference was to be able not so much to come up with any sort of revisionist history as to take that era and try to identify um, some things that were maybe unique that people haven't quite thought about or thought about in much depth, depth about that era to help provide greater insight and a better understanding of what actually happened at that period of time and why. But you did a, a really a beautiful job, and partly what you just spoke about. I just want to read the opening paragraph in your acknowledgments because I think that really brings us into this. Uh, the focus of my baseball research and writing over the years has been on identifying the underlying factors that provide context and insight to what happened and why. I have been particularly interested in considering key events and broader developments from perspectives that are different from the standard narratives about them. This is not, however, an intent to interpret any sort of revisionist history, but rather to elucidate a better understanding of the history that did happen. And it's really, when we first started talking about you coming and, and the book, I hadn't read it yet, and I'm like, wow, this era has been written about a lot. But it's, I really found this fascinating. It, you really did a, a, a terrific job, and uh, I think maybe, I know we're gonna have a lot of interesting questions from this group, but I think maybe uh, if we can just get into it a little bit. Uh, and maybe one of the things to start with, if you would, is in uh, 1946, so it leads us into this, uh, you write a little bit about the McPhail Report. Yes. If you could just speak about that a little bit. Well, the McPhail Report was written in the context of the Dodgers having already signed Jackie Robinson, and he was playing and doing exceptionally well uh, with Montreal. It also should be noted, by the way, that he had also signed uh, Roy Campanella and Don Newcomb, and they were playing at the Class B level um, in white organized Major League Baseball. So in a report that was prepared for the commissioner that, co uh, that covered a range of topics, uh, one of the questions that was there, or one of the issues that was raised, was the so-called race question. And uh, it's actually a relatively short uh, section, but it took head on the whole issue of what the implication of integration would mean for Major League Baseball. And what was interesting to me in particular was the foundation premise of that was essentially a sentence that said something along the effect of Major League Baseball is uh, an entrepreneurial private enterprise. 
and just like any other private business, it, you know, it, it's, it, the intent is to make money. With that basically as the background, the first big issue it discusses is the fact that if you have black players now playing in the major leagues, that's going to attract black fans. And if you have minority fans coming to the ballpark, well, that might suppress the traditional white attendance at these ballparks, which could ultimately be bad for the bottom line of the team. Now, what was interesting is that they singled out three teams in particular that this negative impact could happen to if they had signed black players. Brooklyn was not one of those teams. The teams were the Yankees, uh, the Giants at the Polo Grounds, and the White Sox at, uh, at Comiskey Park. After making that very salient point, it then makes the point which, um, which was a widespread perspective that however good and entertaining black players might have been in the Negro Leagues, they did not have the skills or the discipline or the competitive impulses and instincts that white players had in the major leagues and so consequently probably would not be able to make it in the white major leagues. Besides which, black players had their own major leagues, the Negro Leagues. And from there it then went on to make the rather interesting point that, and by the way, many of us major league club owners actually earn substantial revenues from games being played by Negro League teams in our ballparks. Um, and so it basically concluded with a statement that outright said something to the effect, this has nothing to do with racial prejudice. It's all about good business practices. A couple of the other points, one that I thought was particularly interesting um, that were made in that report was that they estimated that it would take seven years, that you know, they basically said it takes seven years to build a major league ball player, you know, seven years of minor league experience uh, along the way, which is something they then began, I think, and, and Jules Tigel made this observation in the book he wrote called The Great Experiment. But they kind of used that then as sort of an excuse for why even after Jackie Robinson and others were demonstrating that blacks were certainly capable of not only playing Major League Baseball, but playing exceedingly well at Major League Baseball, why there were so few blacks in the major leagues. It just takes seven years, you know, for players to develop to become major leaguers. And, uh, yeah, it's really, the, the McPhail Report I don't think is spoken about a lot, or it's not, certainly not written about a lot, and it was fascinating uh, information that you, that you uncovered. And for the moment, we're going to uh, gloss over Jackie Robinson, not to gloss over Jackie Robinson, because uh, he always takes front and center in the clubhouse. We, I always try to have more items for Jackie Robinson than I do anyone else. But it's fascinating. I think it's the name of a chapter, The Importance of Hank Thompson. And I, if you could just speak about that a little bit. I, I thought it was very, very interesting. Well, this gets back to sort of the intelligence question that I was sort of asking myself about um, the whole question of integration. Because the 1950s are highlighted as a year, you know, uh, as a decade, where Major League Baseball integrated and you had all these fabulous black superstars. 
Jackie Robinson and Ernie Banks and Willie Mays and Hank Aaron and Frank Robinson, um, you know, that's naming many of them. Um, the question that suddenly occurred to me was, okay, these are all terrific ball players, but as we all know, the vast majority of players who are regulars on major league teams are not exceptional elite ball players. And so that was the angle that I wanted to look at, was kind of positing as a hypothesis that integration really could not be considered truly complete until black players of average major league ability are able to have a fair, reasonable shot at winning a position over a comparably skilled white player of average um, major league ability. So one of the things I started looking at was between 1947 and 1960, and let me explain the reason for 1960. The reason I, set, I took 1960 was that 1956 was Jackie Robinson's last year in the major leagues. So any player who made his debut year 1956 would have been five years in the major leagues by 1960. So a couple of questions I wanted to ask were, okay, how many black players were core regulars on their major league team for at least five years by 1960? You know, who basically would have started their careers during the Jackie Robinson years. And then the second question would have been, was, how many of them were elite ball players? And the answer to me was quite revealing. There were only 20 black, of the 78, and actually I think it was 89 black, 78 black players, excuse me, had made their major league debut by the time Jackie Robinson retired in 1956, 78, of whom only 20 could be considered to have been core regulars on their team for at least five years. And by that I mean playing at least 100 games, basically as a starting position player, um, or qualifying for the ERA title um, uh, as a starting pitcher, five years, only 20. Now, two things that was interesting about that was, of those 20, 13 were what I would consider to be elite players based either on they're ultimately making the Hall of Fame, even if, like Roberto Clemente, his really great years didn't come until the 1960s. So that's one criteria for elite player. The second was whether they had a war, wins above replacement, uh, an average annual war of roughly five wins above replacement, which as you know from looking at baseball references, what connotes to an all-star quality level of performance for a year. Of all the white players who were core regulars in that time, and it was over 100 of them, less than 20% could be considered elite by either of those two characteristics. Whereas with regard to the select few black players, only 20 who were core regulars in that period of time, nearly 60%, well over half, were elite by that, uh, by that criteria. So then I started looking into it a little bit more. And uh, of the, uh, by six years into the Jackie Robinson era, we're now talking about 1952, there were only eight players, black players, who by the time Jackie Robinson retired would have been core regulars for at least five years. And only one of them had begun his career before 1952. And that was Hank Thompson, 
of the New York Giants. Now, what's interesting about Hank Thompson, and I actually begin the book with this vignette, is that he was arguably the first black player in the American League to be in the starting lineup. Now, Larry Doby, of course, always gets credit for being the first black in the American League, and that is certainly true. But Larry Doby in 1947 hardly played at all. He just came off of the bench, and he struggled and didn't hit well. The St. Louis Browns signed the great outfielder, Willard Brown, and promising young infielder from the Negro Leagues, Hank Thompson, to play for them in St. Louis. Now, the Browns, of course, were a terrible team, um, certainly with regard to standings, but also with regard to drawing fans to the ballparks. And they may have been hoping that this would maybe inspire some interest <laughs> in the team. After five weeks, it decided it didn't really make much difference with regard to attendance, and both players were released. But the significance is that even though they were used in the platoon role, unlike Larry Doby, Thompson and Brown were both in the starting lineup. Now, Hank Thompson, Brown, Willard Brown never got another chance. He did make the Hall of Fame as a Negro League veteran. Um, but Hank Thompson did get another chance. In 1949, in July, he was called up, along with Monty Irvin, who was the greater player of the two, to the New York Giants. Now, Irvin was having a terrific year at uh, Jersey City, the AAA affiliate of the Giants, and yet he hardly played at all in the rest of the 1949 season. Now, Leo DeRocher, who was the manager, his problem, and I think, in working Irvin into the starting lineup was that he had three outfielders who were already batting 300 at the time. But he had a weakness in the infield, and he put Hank Thompson in at second base, and Thompson finished up playing every single game from the time he was called up until the end of the season, except for maybe a handful of games when he was hurt. The next year, when the Giants got Eddie Stanky, Leo DeRocher moved him over to third. Now, the significant point here is that, unlike Monty Irvin or any of the other black players who were called up in the beginning phases of integration, Hank Thompson was not an exceptional ball player. And yet, Leo DeRocher was willing to give him the opportunity to perform as a regular and keep him in that role despite various struggles that he had along the way. Hank Thompson was never an all-star, never made an all-star team. Hank Thompson's average wins above replacement in the year that he was a regular for the uh, New York Giants was just slightly over three wins above replacement, which is certainly basically right in the middle of what an average major league ball player would be, but not a superstar ball player like, say, Willie Mays. Leo DeRocher, I think, gets a lot of credit for allowing Hank Thompson not only the opportunity to start for the New York Giants, but to keep him in the role as a regular, actually for as long as Leo DeRocher remained as manager. He could have brought, used another white player in his stead to fill the position. And specifically, I'm thinking of Billy Gardner, who was a young infielder in the Giants system, very promising infielder. Um, he could have moved into that position instead of Hank Thompson. And in fact, Billy Gardner later in his career uh, was a regular second baseman for the Baltimore Orioles for roughly five years in the, uh, in the 1950s. But Leo didn't. He went with Hank Thompson. And the subtitle, A Time of Transition and Integration. Before we get to transition, just to stick with a, a little bit more in the integration area, if you could just speak a little bit about uh, 
certainly a superstar. But Hank Aaron, Milwaukee Hank Aaron versus Southern Atlanta Hank Aaron, the, uh, what that was like for him, uh, that experience as um, a star. Right. There is a great bio biography of uh, Hank Aaron written by... Uh, Bryant, yeah. Howard Bryant. Howard, yeah. I was trying to remember what his first name is. And I recommend the book to anyone who hasn't um, read it. And Hank Aaron was very much welcomed, as were the other black players in Milwaukee, although they, again, had to live in, you know, maybe not exactly the toniest part of, uh, uh, of town. Hank Aaron was particularly concerned, as were the other black players on the Milwaukee Braves, when it became very apparent in the mid-1960s that the team was going to move to the, uh, to the South. Um, but, you know, baseball being what it is, that there was nothing, he had no say in it. And of course, uh, with the reserve clause, he also had no option to opt out of the Braves uh, to go elsewhere. So he accompanied the team to uh, Atlanta, and there are some people who claim, including, I believe, Bryant, that he actually had a significant role to play in terms of greater tolerance for integration in the South because of the starring role he played uh, with the Atlanta Braves down there. It's worth noting, by the way, that in the year that the Atlanta Braves moved down to uh, uh, Atlanta, Georgia, they were having governor's race for Georgia where uh, Lester Maddox, who was notorious as, you know, for his racial attitudes, was uh, at that time running for, uh, for governor on a segregationist platform. So that would seem to be almost a disconnect between, you know, moving the team there with such outstanding black player as Hank Aaron on the team, and then what was going on politically. And then for now, if we, we're gonna transition a little bit to transition. So, a couple of the areas that you, you uh, write about in this era is platooning, mainly uh, with Casey Stengel at the helm of that, uh, pitching staffs and relief pitching, and the player manager. So let's start with uh, platooning with Casey Stengel and just platooning in general. Just some thoughts on that. Yeah, well, first of all, I would say that uh, Casey Stengel was uh, maybe un somewhat underappreciated, even after he went to the Yankees in terms of what he actually did uh, as a manager. Now, it's not as though platooning had completely gone away. Uh, but it was not, platooning was not what it had been in the period of time from roughly the mid-teens until the late 1920s when most major league teams platooned at at least one position almost always in the outfield. And Casey Stengel himself was victimized by platooning. And I say victimized because no self-respecting major league player who believed he could be a regular on a full-time basis really wanted to be platooned. When he came to the Yankees, what he had was a team that was not the Joe DiMaggio Yankees, even though DiMaggio was still on the team. But we're not talking about the great teams from 1936 to the 1942 before DiMaggio went off to war that just completely dominated the American League in every single possible way. This Yankee team was a little bit more pedestrian, if you want to call it that. Um, what one of the things that Stengel did was take a look at his team and decided, okay, 
I've got now two core regulars who were in the lineup every single day, health permitting. And health was a big factor with regard to Joe DiMaggio. He was one. Phil Rizzuto was the other. Within a couple of years, actually by 1949, when Stengel's first year, that also included catcher Yogi Berra. Um, and of course, when Mickey Mantle arrived in 1951, that included Mickey Mantle. And Hank Bauer was more or less sort of always in there, at least in the beginning stages of, uh, of uh, his career under Stengel. But what Stengel did was essentially platoon at virtually every other position. And I kind of call it controlled chaos because it wasn't a strict platoon necessarily in terms of like a right-hander with a left-hander and who started depended on whether, you know, what pitcher was. A lot of his platoons were one right-handed infielder with another right-handed infielder. He just had an intuitive sense of who was going to do well against which particular pitcher. But the other thing that he did that I found was really fascinating was that he went beyond simply platooning to ma making massive position player substitutions during games. This was something new. It had been done principally by John McGraw in the past, but even in the days of platooning, typically whoever started the game at the position stayed in the game even if they had to change a pitcher to the, uh, uh, who threw from the other arm. That wasn't the way uh, um, Casey Stengel was. In fact, it's very interesting. I think he managed in a total of 63 World Series games um, with the Yankees. And in well over half of them, his eight position starters in the lineup, when, you know, at least one of them had been replaced during the game for a pinch hitter, a pinch runner, or sometimes a defensive replacement. That number was substantially less, like maybe under 20, 18, 15 to 18, or something like that for the uh, 63 games managed by, uh, um, by National League managers. So that, I think, was um, a real innovation with regard to strategy that, that Stengel um, implemented, which was, I am going to play every single game, not only necessarily changing my starting lineup, but taking this guy out, putting another guy in. And one of the things that was very important is that he really wanted infielders in particular who were incredibly versatile. And of course, the poster boy of versatility would have been Gil McDougal, um, who in his career played, started out, I think, playing third base. He also played shortstop. He went to second base. A lot of the, he went, I think, from third to second. Then he went to shortstop. And a lot of the original moves depended on who happened to be drafted for the Korean War. Um, wherever he was needed, that's where he played, and sometimes multiple times in the same season. I think he was an all-star at any position. Yes, he was. But he won a world championship in his position. That's true, too. <laughs> <laughs> and he never played for any manager other than Mr. Stengel. <laughs> We're going to get to the questions in uh, just a second, but there's uh, two other areas I want to touch on first. One of the chapters is entitled The Age of Enlightenment about relief pitching. Just a little about that. Um, this was another area that I sort of got particularly interested in when I noticed that in 1946, um, Leo DeRocher set a record for having used the most relief pitchers um, 
um, you know, more relief pitchers in one single season than was ever done before. And it struck me a little bit as odd because complete games were still in vogue. Managers expected their starting pitchers to pitch complete games, and all self-respecting starting pitchers expected to go to dis the distance. But here you're talking about a team that at the end of the 154 games was tied for first place. They wound up losing the playoff, as you remember, to the St. Louis Cardinals. But you're talking basically a first place team whose starting pitchers actually had the second best starters ERA in the league, and he's using more relievers than any other manager. So in a way, that kind of didn't make sense. So one of the things I did was, okay, if you subtract the complete games, and because all relief pitchers would come in in games that were not complete games, and figure out what, how many percent, what, you know, what, how many relievers were used in games that were not complete games, the numbers became even more dramatic. And then they suddenly started realizing that Leo DeRocher was really making, even as early as 1946, a tremendous number of moves in games that were not complete games, bringing in pitchers basically to fit the particular circumstances. One of the things DeRocher always made sure to have, even when he was you know, prior to World War II in 1941 and 1942, was to have a good left-hander whom he could rely on out of the bullpen. Okay, so then fast forward a bit to beyond his days with the Dodgers to when he goes to the uh, New York Giants. And he had a pretty good pitching staff with the New York Giants. And the Giants were one of those teams were actually, when he was managing them between 1951 and 1954, during which they won the pennants each of those two years, other than the Braves, who had Spahn and Sane, um, his team again had the most complete games in the National League. And yet, once again, for non-complete games, he was using more relievers than any other manager. Then there was the story of what happened in 1954, where he decided that just like with starting pitching, you'd like to have maybe two aces on your staff. Same thing with relievers. Hoyt Wilhelm came up uh, in 1954. And then he also had um, 52. 52, that's right. Wilhelm was now so in his third year. <laughs> okay. Um, so Wilhelm had been, in, been there since 1952. In 1954, he also had um, Marv Grissom. And he used the two virtually interchangeably. Not quite interchangeably, because Wilhelm tended to be used for longer stints in relief than was Griffin. But basically, what he had were two great. Um, um, relievers in the bullpen, and he did use them situationally. In the 1954 World Series, for example, there's the famous story, and I hope it's true that Lytle actually said this, uh, where Don Lytle was brought in to pitch to Vic Wirtz uh, in a tough situation in the late innings of the opening game of the World Series, um, and Wirtz blasted the drive to deep center field on which Willie Mays made the iconic catch, at which point uh, Lytle was a left-hander. Um, a right-handed batter was due up next. DeRocher comes out to the mound to bring in a righty, and uh, Lytle says to his reliever as he comes to the mound, well, I got my man. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the other interesting thing about the 1954 World Series, which is it was a sweep by the uh, Giants against the overwhelmingly favored 111 win 
Cleveland Indians. In the final game, Lytle started that game. When things got a little bit tough in the seventh inning, I believe, Leo DeRocher brought in the right-hander Hoyt Wilhelm to pitch to a right-handed batter. I believe there was a, the tying run was at the plate at the time. There were runners on base. Wilhelm got out of that inning. But then the next inning, he got into a little bit of trouble. Once again, it's Vic Wirtz coming up. Wilhelm is a right-hander, so that didn't fit. DeRocher then brought in one of his ace starting pitchers, the left-hander, Johnny Antonelli, who retired Wirtz and then went on to save the game and end the World Series. So DeRocher was, in fact, one of the first most innovative managers in terms of using, structuring his bullpen and using his relievers uh, for effective games. So something tells me we're going to have some questions from the, uh, from the crowd. So my only request is questions, not, uh, not long uh, statements. So who wants to lead off with a, with a question? Under McPhail report, you said they were based on business, but yet you enlisted six or seven stereotypes for black players. They, they're not competitive, they're, 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 their instincts were not as good as white. Isn't that racism? You say, well, not based on racism, but based on capitalism. Well, when I, the, the statements I were making was what the McPhail report actually said. So, you know. Um, we can call it what it actually is, but what the McPhail report actually said were exactly all three of those things. That baseball is a business, we're in it to make money, and having black players could hurt our profitability. Black players in any event are really not able to play in major leagues because of the reasons that you just mentioned. And then it concluded by saying, and by the way, this has nothing to do with racial prejudice. <laughs> it's business. <laughs> That's what the McPhail report said. Uh, I've always thought of when Jackie Robinson put the color on that it was a great thing for everybody. Everybody would have felt good about that. Uh, I'm reading a book about the defendant, the Chicago African-American paper, and Kay Young, I think, was a sports writer for that. And in that book, uh, they quote another sports writer or writer at the defender going to the Negro All-Star game in Chicago the year that Jackie Robinson was with the Montreal Royals. And he said he looked over at Faye Young, and during the game he was crying. They said, why, what are you so upset about? And he, he said, well, this means the end of the Negro Leagues. Did many people in the Negro Leagues see it that way from the beginning too? Were they upset about that? I was always told like Ricky was wonderful in breaking the color line, but he never paid for a player because he thought the Negro Leagues were just a bunch of numbers <coughs> runners. And would be undignified to even pay for a player out of the Negro Leagues. Well, I'm not sure what his motives actually were in not paying for them, but that part is actually true. You know, so that's somewhat of a blemish on his otherwise sainted reputation uh, for what he did with regard to integration. My view on the whole integration thing um, and the impact on the Negro Leagues and, quite frankly, the broader black community in the United States is. I think it was very much of, uh, I don't even want to say ambivalence. I think it was, you know, I think that the feelings of the African American population were genuinely conflicted. Because obviously, having the right to play, and, you know, it, in Major League Baseball, which is what all of America considered to be the only major leagues in the country, was a right 
that they felt was absolutely essential. That's what you went to World War II for, in, in effect. So that had to happen. But on the other hand, they also understood that it was going to have a very deleterious impact on the Negro Leagues. The Negro Leagues could not ultimately survive that. And also, I recall reading someplace, actually several different articles, to the effect that it also had a deleterious impact on the black community because a lot of these Negro League teams were really well integrated into the black community and were a part of that community. And when they went away, the community lost something. But in a way, I guess there were many, I think ultimately most African Americans would have said even at the time that such is the price of progress and this was a necessary thing that needed to happen. The uh, logic of him picking the Giants, the Yankees, and the White Sox, as opposed to picking the Red Sox, Philadelphia, and St. Louis, I think that would be impacted by integration. I mean, how did he come up with those? Well, yeah, first of all, the McPhail Report was written by uh, a committee. It was called the McPhail Report. Um, Larry McPhail, who was at that time, um, one of the, I'm not sure he was a co-owner. Okay, he was one of the co-owners of the Yankees. Um, so, you know, obviously he was looking, you know, at his own team's interests as well. Other, other than that, I'm not quite sure why he would select those three teams unless it would have been only because of the vibrancy of the black community in New York City at the time, um, particularly in the area around the polo grounds. Um, and I'm, I don't know enough about Chicago. Um, yeah, okay. So that would help to, uh, to explain that in terms of why they selected those, uh, those cities. Uh, well, the first question, which I discussed with Jay before coming here, he's already been asked. The last three teams that have black players, uh, Boston, Detroit, and Philadelphia, and I know since I spent a lot of time in Philly that I've why do they drag? Why why do they drag so long? Why do they wait so long? I think '59 was the last year of the of the uh, the last all white team was the Boston Red Sox up until '59. Yeah. Is there any explanation for that? Why? Do I think it was just an attitude of you know ownership attitude um, towards uh, you know, towards black players and their assessment of what impact it might have economically on their team's fortunes. Philly was, uh, so where I lived for four years was a, uh, had such a big black population that, that puzzles me. You had Detroit and Boston, I don't know that well. Well, of course, as, as, as we also know from going forward from the 1950s into the 1960s, and quite frankly, even into the 1990s, um, both Philadelphia and Boston had very problematic relationships with uh, black major league players in particular. And I think it was also even true to some extent to some of the other sports um, in, in those two uh, cities. But I, I can't be certain. They put a bowel movement in Bill Russell's bed. They broke it in his house. But Howard Bryant wrote about it. And they put it in his bed while they were on a road trip. Uh, Well, that's right. The city just had trouble 
dealing with the fact that they were so wrong and just kept having that opinion that they were right, that we shouldn't, that education shouldn't have happened. Yeah. seven years to develop a plan. And I'm intrigued by that, because first of all, if the average organized baseball player was signed into the minors at, say, the age of 17, that would mean that the, the average rookie was 20, 20 years old. And that just strikes me as being awfully old. And I'm curious, was that, how old was the average rookie? And uh, is that seven-year fictitious number they made up to justify, you know, the analysis of the report or uh, what? Well, I actually looked into that question. Um, and the way it breaks down is this. Um, for, white, for elite white players, if you were like Joe DiMaggio or Mickey Mantle um, or Al Kaline never even played in the minor leagues, but you know, for elite white players, they typically made it through the minor leagues extraordinarily quickly. Um, but basically, the five to seven year rule, and I think seven years is maybe on the long side, it was more likely to be around five years. Five to seven years was typical for your average major league ball player. Now, what was fascinating to me was when you take a look at the black players who were coming along, um, most of the elite players spent very little time in the minor leagues, comparable to what their white counterparts would have spent. And the same was true for players, on, uh, you know, black players who weren't more average before they got their shot at the major leagues. They were spending roughly about the same amount of time as their white counterparts. I'm thinking specifically of Gene Baker, who played second base for the uh, Chicago Cubs. Um, Maury Wills, for example, spent more than 900 games playing in the minor leagues before he got his shot finally um, with the uh, Los Angeles Dodgers. Now, the thing to keep in mind, though, is that even throughout the 1950s, even if that held true in terms of the black players who made it to the major leagues, that didn't necessarily mean that those black players made it as a regular in the starting lineup for any extended period of time. And, you know, for the Jackie Robinsons and, and Minnie Minosos, who starred and who were, in fact, elite players. You had guys like Sam Jethro and Luke Easter who actually made the starting lineup, but as soon as something started to go wrong, first of all, most of these guys were already in their 30s. Um, but second of all, if they suffered an injury or went into a slump, they were much less likely to recover their starting position than a typical white player of comparable ability would have been in the early 1950s. It really wasn't until the 1960s that, um, um, that I would consider integration to have been uh, actually consolidated. And even then, as I point out in the concluding chapter in the book, um, of the black players who were core position play regulars um, in the 1960s for at least four years, I actually went down a year, um, the percentage of elite players for blacks was almost one-third. One-third of the black players who were elite players, as I defined earlier, um, of the black players who were regulars were elite players, whereas the figure for white players was on the order of about 12%. So even then, it was still 
it was improving. And I would argue that the 60s were the decade where, in fact, integration was, official, you know, was consolidated in terms of players winning the position based on merit and not you know, where, where the color of their skin had nothing to do with it. much less than the, than, than the average player. Uh, just the regular signee, for instance. And very few of the guys, black players, uh, received bonuses. That was before the, the draft. When I got to spring training, and we had, we had guys, I played with Rico Cardi and a whole host of Tommy Aaron, a whole host of these guys, they were getting $400 a month. And uh, guys like Wade Blassingham show up with their, you know, their convertible $150,000, that type of thing. That was, that was blatant in my eyes. I'm, I signed for about 20000 I thought I was the richest guy in the world. I get down there, I said, my, I, I sold myself short. But uh, a lot of people, uh, I, I just noticed, it just struck me that, uh, that there was really a, um, a dichotomy there. It was so very, very, uh, you, said, you said one other thing, is that you said that the 60s was a time when integration really um, came to fruition. Um, I, I guess it, it. I guess it was, but in the minor leagues, it was different. It was completely different. It's uh, the Hispanic players were routinely the salt of the earth. These guys played hurt, and when they played hurt, obviously you're not performing at the, at the top level. And most of the managers, old timers, tobacco in the jaws, uh, he's jaking it. You know, he, in, in the first roster move. You want to, uh, you need a spot for some, you know, a bonus baby. The first guy to go is a Hispanic player. He's gone. So, I mean, I, I take that with a grain of salt. I, I, there was a lot more, I think probably, maybe in the late, the late 60s or 70s, that, that it probably got better, but I, I didn't see it that way. Well, I mean, there are a couple of things I'd like to just quickly add to what you said, and that is even at the major league level in spring training, yeah. black players for most teams in Florida, um, in particular, were you know still could not stay in the hotels where where their teams were. I played. I was in spring training in Wake Forest, Georgia. I mean, it was integrated within the camp. But when I, when I left the camp to go into town, I you know I have to have a list of things to bring back for the black players because they wouldn't go in, especially the northern guys. And then the other thing I would say is that racial stereotypes persisted. Oh yeah, no throughout the 1960s. And probably even beyond that, in terms of black players not being smart enough or not having you know, competitive guts, unwilling to play hurt, uh, all that sort of thing. And we all remember, I think, what happened in 1964 with Alvin Dark as manager of the Giants, one of the most integrated teams in baseball at the time. Um, and the attitude he took, which was just amazing when you consider it. Um, towards his black and Hispanic players in particular um, on that team. He was from Louisiana. Yeah. He also played with Willie Mays and, you know, <laughs> and Monty Irvin and certainly knew. Yeah. When you spoke about the players from, the black players from 56 to um, 1960, you said about 20 of them were considered the league of the players. From 1947 to 60. Okay. Yeah. And out of the 20, are they that elite standing? Was 
that elite standing after they played, or was it during the time that they played? And were they represented as elite players? In other words, did they make the All Star team every year? Fourteen were starters. Uh, Twenty were starters. Thirteen right. of them were elite, and elite includes most of them were elite by virtue of their wins above replacement. So that it, you know, they were recognized as being superior players. And let's let's make no mistake here. In the 1950s. After Jackie Robinson and Minnie Minoso and Willie Mays and those guys basically integrated the league, if you were a black player with superior talent, you were not going to be denied. You were going to be a regular on the major league team. It was the players who were more average um, players who were not. The other definition for elite, however, and really Roberto Clemente is the only one who falls into this category, is someone who ultimately made the Hall of Fame but in the 1950s, I think you could not yet argue that Roberto Clemente right, yeah, right. was an elite player. Now, what's interesting is of those players, every single one of them, by the way, the elite players is in the Hall of Fame with two exceptions. The two exceptions are Don Newcomb and Minnie Minoso. Minnie Minoso, as you know, was up for reconsideration by... I don't. I forget the committee, what it's called now. It used to be the Veterans Committee, but now they have them for the three errors, um, the integration error, I guess. He was up for consideration the month before he died um, last year. Um, and Don Newcomb, probably the fact that he lost two years serving his country during the Korean War cost him uh, the opportunity to make the Hall of Fame. Any, anyone who hasn't asked a question yet? Is there, uh, is there any <coughs> points or stories in the book that, that uh, you maybe would have missed or looked at differently if you didn't have your experience and skill set of your day job? <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually glad you asked that question. <laughs> Because I, I did what I call, or what we in the intelligence community sometimes call, deep dives. Three deep dives in the book. One has to do with the story about the Giants having set up Herman Franks in the clubhouse, way out beyond center field, in the polo grounds, stealing catcher signs through the spy glass in the year that they made their tremendous comeback to win the pennant. And of course, Bobby Thompson's home run has been forever tainted. By that. So one deep dive was looking at the issue of, well, how much did that exactly help the New York Giants when they were playing at home that year? With the caveat that if it made a difference in just one game, just one game, then it made a significant difference because they wound up tied at the end of the regular season. That's the first deep dive. The second deep dive was taking a look at the issue of Charlie Dressen's decisions with regard to the Bobby Thompson game and why he did what he may have done. And one point uh, with regard to that that I'd just like to call to people's attention, there were a number of other things that went on before that, uh, other issues that were addressed. But ultimately, it comes down to Ralph Branca against Bobby Thompson. Bobby Thompson had already knocked Branca for, three home, uh, for two home, three home runs during the season, including two in September, and one just two days before in the opening game of the, uh, uh, of the three game playoff. He represents the winning run. 
So Charlie Dressen and first base was open. He had the option of intentionally walking Bobby Thompson. Now, Bobby Thompson was on a hot streak. I mean, this guy was hot. Since the beginning of September, the guy had hit in virtually every game. He had an average of like something like over 400 since the middle of September. Bobby Thompson. Meanwhile, on deck is Willie Mays. Willie Mays is a rookie, scared to death, he subsequently said, sits in the on-deck circle, and he hasn't been hitting well at all. He's just two for his last 19, and hasn't been hitting well in all of September, but two hits in just his last 19 at-bats. So if you walk Thompson and say Mays hits the ball, gets a fly ball into the outfield, drives in a run, okay? Then it's a one-run game, okay? So a run is scored, but the Dodgers still have a leave lead. Who's up next? Catcher, Roble. Andy Roble? Noble. Noble. Ray Noble. I was uh, forgetting his first name there for a minute. Noble is in the game because Wes Westrom got pinch hit for earlier in the game. Leo DeRocher had no other options other than to let Ray Noble hit for himself. And Noble was, had all of like about 140 plate appearances uh, to his credit in the major leagues and was batting barely over 200 against right-handers which Branca was. DeRocher had no other options because he had already used Bill Rigney and Hank Thompson as pinch hitters. And the last guy he had on his bench, Clint Hartung, had just had to come into the game to replace Don Mueller, who broke his ankle, sliding into uh, third base. So one can argue, while it certainly would have been unconventional and a risk to put Bobby Thompson on first base as the potential winning run, with Mays and Roble coming up next, that might have been you know, the better option to do. And then the third, right and then the third, uh, <laughs> the third deep dive has to do with the question of the allegation that in 1956, um, the Cincinnati Reds, who finished two games behind, did not win the pennant because their manager Bertie Tibbetts did not want a black man, Brooks Lawrence, to win 20 games. Brooks Lawrence had 19 wins by mid-September. He had 18 at the beginning of September. He hardly started at all in September. Um, and that it was racism that basically cost the Reds the pennant that year. So I looked into that issue as well. We can talk about that offline or now, depending on how much time we still have left. No, you can definitely. I, I, it's a very interesting subject, so I think you should continue with that. Yes. Okay. One of the things I found was the allegation was essentially that Bertie Tebbets did not trust Brooks Lawrence's guts, you know, as a black pitcher in, the, in a tight pennant race, ultimately. <clears throat> and he had a terrible month of August, and other people have pointed that out, that maybe there was a really good baseball reason why he hardly started in September. That's because he had a terrible month of August. Well, in the beginning of September, he wins his 18th game. Two games later, they're playing the Milwaukee Braves. The Milwaukee Braves are the team there that, are, that is in first place. It's a doubleheader. The Braves win the first game of the doubleheader. They were in Atlanta in 66. I'm talking about 1956. 56. Um, so the Braves win the first game of the doubleheader. By winning the first game, they're now up by four and a half games. Second game of the doubleheader, the Reds have a five to two lead. The bases are loaded. Nobody is out. Hank Aaron is coming up. Eddie Matthews is coming up. Between the two of them, they hit something like 1,700 home runs you know, for, the, for, the, for the Braves alone uh, over the course of their career. Who does Bertie Tebbets call on to come in 
to get those crucial outs. The pitcher, whom he supposedly thought, you know, who people were arguing he didn't have faith in his guts, Brooks Lawrence. Brooks Lawrence had pitched a four-hitter, complete game, just two days before, so he's pitching on one day of rest. He comes in, retires Hank Aaron on a fly ball to left, no run can score, then gets Matthews to hit into a double play, pitches the rest of the game, the Braves win the game, they're back to three and a half behind. The swing in that game could have been the difference between three and a half and still in the pennant race, and five and a half with 18 games remaining and basically probably done. Now what happened as a result of that was that the starting rotation got thrown out of alignment. But he was still in the starting rotation and he made two subsequent starts, just as he would have, you know, every fourth day, um, winning his 19th game against the Pittsburgh Pirates. After which, it's off to Brooklyn for the, uh, um, for the Reds. Now it's the Dodgers who are in first place. It's a two-game series. The Braves are two games behind. And uh, rather, the Reds are two games behind. And the Braves are still you know, right up there, too. These are must-win games as far as Bertie Tebbets is concerned. In the first game, in the, uh, in the first game, the Reds fall behind in the early innings. Bases loaded situation. He brings in Brooks Lawrence to get out of a tough jam to prevent the score from being worse. Lawrence does his job, finishes the inning, then he's out of the game. The next day, they lost that game, by the way. The next day, they absolutely positively got to win this game. Lawrence comes into the game in the ninth inning of a tie game. He pitches into the 10th inning, and he winds up losing, giving up a home run in the 10th to uh, um, the right fielder, Ferrillo. Carl Ferrillo hits a game-winning home run. This series did not go well for the Reds, but they're still in, in it. They go to Philadelphia, and Bertie Tebbets uses him in two more consecutive games against the Phillies to try to win those games. Both games they wind up losing, not necessarily because of Brooks Lawrence. But the point is that, begin, including his start with Pittsburgh, he had now pitched five days in a row in must-win games for the Cincinnati Reds. He did not make another start. But one can argue that he was certainly, as far as Bertie Tebbets was concerned, a go-to pitcher in games that needed to be won. Those were three deep dives. Because of the, uh, the time factor, we're going to have to say farewell to the podcast audience. Uh, I just want to say it's, it's really been fa The book is fantastic. The discussion has been fascinating. The deep dives, the analysis. I would feel better if you were either running the CIA or running for president. <laughs> uh, the name of the book, The Golden Era of Major League Baseball, A Time of Transition and Integration, published by Roman and Littlefield, the author Brian Soderholm, Defad. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.